Welcome to the weekly podcast of Calvary Chapel, South London. A church where the truth of God's word meets and transforms the reality of our daily lives. We hope you are impacted by this week's teaching. And it's, it is good to see you all. Thank you. Um, as you guys are settling down, uh, can I just take this opportunity to um, just breathe a word of prayer? Uh, Heavenly Father, truly we just thank you, Lord, for another opportunity, Lord, to come together as a family, to sit underneath your word, Lord, and be in a place, Lord, where we can allow your Holy Spirit to minister to our hearts. Truly, it's a privilege, Lord. And um, during this time, Lord, I just pray that we could forget about all the distractions, Lord. We could forget about, you know, the situations we may find ourselves in our own personal lives, Lord, and allow the power of your word, Lord, to bring about change within the inner person, within the inner being. Your word is quick, it's powerful, it's sharper than a two-edged sword, Lord. And Lord Jesus, we just pray that it will just do its work today. In our hearts, in our minds, Lord. Help us to leave this place a little bit more like you because that's the desired effect, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, again, good afternoon, everyone. And if you have been tracking with us over the last couple of weeks, you would know that we're in the epistle of First John. And we have arrived at a point where we're in chapter 5. So if you have your Bibles with you today, um, I would be grateful if you would open up to the first epistle of John, chapter 5, and when you're there, if you say amen, three amens. Amen. Well, as we look through um, First John today, um, and as I was studying and preparing, it it helped me to look at what we're going to be looking at in five movements. And so if you're taking notes today, the five movements I'm going to try and explore, not exhaustively, but just try and touch upon, will be the first one, the believer's assurance and evidence. The second one will be the reliability of Jesus the Christ. The third will be the work and witness of the Holy Spirit. The fourth will be the believer's personal witness. And the fifth will be the Father's full assurance. Now, you won't get them in your Bible, they're mine. <laughs> and so I hope you can track with me as we, as we do that. So we're going to attempt to look at First John from chapters 1 to 13, but we're going to break it down. So initially, we're looking at verses 1 to 5. And I'm reading from the New King James, and it says, Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves him who begot also loves him who is begotten of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Amen? Amen. So, again, if you've been tracking along with us, trying to keep within this threefold theme as well of what the epistle, epistle of John is trying to communicate, which is the believer's theology. What do we believe in? 
the believer's morality, how does that now outwork within your personal individual life? And then the social outworking of what we say we believe in. How does that communicate and outwork to others? That's the threefold themes which was going on. And John sort of like, I don't know if you've actually studied it as well, but John seems to be repeating himself, saying the same thing. He comes away from the point. He goes back to the point. It's just a cycle. And many times I'm looking and thinking, John, you're just being repetitious, but who knows that's the best way to learn? Being repetitious. And who knows that as children of God, we are very fickle. We need things to be repeated to us over and over and over again. And so right now, what the Apostle John has, he has the social aspect of our faith in view. And he wants to point out that those who say they believe in Jesus Christ must demonstrate it. They must show it somehow. Because genuine love and care and support has to be displayed to others. Initially to those within the household of God, but to a dying world as well. And so he's looking at how do we care for and treat others? Because how we care for and treat others is a very tangible way and it's a very observable way of evidencing our love for God. Amen? So the initial thought of chapter 5 is actually carried over from chapter 4, verse 19. If you know in the original scriptures, they haven't got chapter divisions or anything, and so we have to go back to chapter 4, verse 19 to start getting the thought of what John's trying to communicate here. So if you've got your Bibles, I don't know if you're going to flip back or it's on the same page, but verse 19 of chapter 4 says, we love him, who? God. Why? Because he first loved us. So we as believers are in a position where because God took the initiative, because God made the first move to demonstrate and show love towards us, we are now in a position where we can show and demonstrate love towards others. But it isn't just any type of love. We're thinking now along the lines of God's type of love, that unconditional love. So we now have the ability to love with this God type of love. And because God has placed his spirit within us, he actually expects us to love. He expects it to be evidenced in the life of the believer. And so John basically says, carrying on chapter 4, verse 20, he's basically saying, it's okay you saying you love God, but how can you prove it? How do you prove it? And verse 20 says, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, what does he say? He is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? You see, this type of mindset is contradictory in terms. And if you basically look at that verse and you flip it, you're actually saying, I don't love my brother and sister, therefore I don't love God. And so John is saying, you have to evidence this somehow. It has to be demonstrated and communicated in your action, your attitude towards your brother and sister. And so he goes on in verse 21 and he says, and this commandment we have for him, from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. It's not a choice. It's not a, well, I'll do it when I feel like it. It's not a, well, you know, if they're nice to me, I'll be nice to them. Genuine love must be evidenced towards the family of God and as I said, to a dying world. And so, you know, just thinking about this for a for a minute, just to meditate on this for a minute, you know, we could ask the question, how are we doing in that department? You know, how are we doing in the department of really 
showing love and showing care towards our brothers and sisters. You see, if find, finding love in others is a, is a major difficulty in your life, you finding it difficult to really just give of yourself and give, show love to someone, then John asks the question. And the question is, are you a true believer? Which is very hard. But he goes on, the point he's making is because those who genuinely are born of God, they will love as God expects them to love. You know, if it's a difficulty, we will yield to the Lord and cultivate a sweetness and a, a genuineness of spirit towards others. And so, for many, that's a challenge. For many, you know, they live their lives being very insular and, you know, it's me, myself, and I, and I don't really want to share or give myself to others. I just want to keep my life to myself. And Jesus, you can fit into my life this way, but that way, no thank you. And we're all, we're all a work in progress, Amen. We've all got areas in our lives where we need to work out and we need the Lord to just expand us and expand our tent pegs, as it were. But we can't live there. We can't stay there. Because the Lord wants us to change. The Lord wants us to be more like him and less like us. He must increase, we must. Amen. So, that is a very, very interesting thing to meditate on and think about. And when John's speaking about these things, he's not, you know, please don't get it confused with those times when you may have difficulties with your brother or your sister, or, you, you know, you, you're in a situation where you're all ought with someone, because we're a family, again, amen? And within families, things happen. But within this family, the family of God, when things happen, we don't just leave it. We don't just leave it and allow it to fester. And then it becomes a stronghold. It becomes the root of bitterness. We don't do that, do we? Amen? We don't do that, do we? You know, the scriptures give us this framework so that when, when we have ought with our brother, the Bible says, I've got two down here who are with me. Go to your brother. You know, let's get to that place of reconciliation because that's how the family of God needs to operate. We have Matthew 18, we have Luke 17. A framework so that when there's difficulty, we can work through these things. So John isn't referring to that because we will have difficult. What he's actually referring to is this continuous attitude of I really don't want to be around the people of God. They make me feel uncomfortable. When they start talking about that Bible business, oh, it just irks me. I'd rather be going out with my work colleagues and my work friends because, you know, we just have a laugh and chill and kick back. You see, if you have that attitude, you've got to be careful. Because that's not demonstrating and evidencing the love of God which he expects from us. So, to challenge this mindset and to challenge this attitude and to start zooming in and homing in on whether we are genuinely saved or not, John qualifies who a believer is and exactly who our brothers and sisters are. And so, with my first movement, which is the believer's assurance and evidence, in chapter 5, we're in chapter 5 now, verse 1, it says, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Now, when we read this in the English, um, 
we can quite easily skim over what it's actually trying to communicate here. But when we kind of like delve a little bit into the Greek, we see that the structure of this verse places this word believes in the continuous present tense. So it's not, you know, once upon a time, five years ago on a Tuesday, I believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and I no longer believe. It's I believed and I continue believing. I continue believing. I keep believing. You see, he's making this distinction of someone who at some point in the past believed in the Lord Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. And now this person who says they believed at some point in the past or maybe even in that place right now where they're making a choice to believe, they will continuously go on believing. John is saying, this is the person who is born again. But John doesn't leave it there. He's still looking for evidence. And he says, and everyone who loves him, who's the him here? The father who begot the son also loves him, lowercase h, which means you and me, who is begotten of him. So you're saying you love the father, you're saying you love the son, now you have to love your brothers and sisters as well. The believing one must also become the loving one. You see, because the love for God and the love for his people, as John is writing here in his epistle, are exclusively and inseparably linked to each other. And if you really think about it, God placing his nature, his very nature within us, you know, it demands it. It shouldn't demand any less. And if we're in that place where we're just so stubborn, <laughs> I love you, God, but your brother, my brothers allow it. They vex me. They never live up to my expectations. They don't call me. You can't live there. Amen? Now, the danger with thinking along this way now is that someone can then say, well, <laughs> I do all these things to demonstrate my love for my brother and sister, therefore, I must love God. And this is an incorrect way of looking at things because it starts from a wrong premise. The things we do for our brothers and sisters does not equate to us loving God. You see, well, how we have to look at it is like our horizontal love for God and towards God will naturally outwork itself vertically. That's how it should happen. We naturally have this love for God. Lord, I love you. We sing the songs. We pray the prayers. Lord, I love you. I'll do anything for you. I give my life for you. So he says, okay, love your brother and your sister. Love the one who just started spreading rumors about you, which are not true. We can go in there, but I'm not going to go in. You see, it's the right way of looking at things. It's that vertical love which then displays itself horizontally. Nice sign of the cross there. So that's why in verse 2, he says, by this, because it seems a bit weird putting verse 2 in there. He says, by this, we know that we love the children of God. When? When we love God and keep his commandments. You see, he flips it. I'm not saying I love God because I love his people. I'm saying I love God because I'm just demonstrating love towards God, which naturally just goes out to his people. Have I confused you all? Amen. 
You see, that is how genuine and authentic love for God's children is seen. It's motivated, it's directed towards God first. And it's not based on human sentiment or emotion. You see, because we can look to the world. We can look to the world and see people who do good things, do nice things. We think about all the disasters which have happened in the world, in the Philippines or in Africa or, or in the, the West Indies with hurricanes or tsunamis or anything. And before you know it, a million pound has been raised. People do good things. That doesn't necessarily mean they love God. People help their neighbors. They show acts of kindness. Does it mean they love God? No, it doesn't. We demonstrate our love for God by obeying his word, keeping connected to him. I keep looking up. You see, the direction is very, very important. And in verse 3, John goes on to say, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. And we notice here as we look at verse 3 that the word commandments is not singular, it's plural. And it's given in the plural, but they're not actually listed. No commandments are actually listed. And I think it's important that no commandments aren't, are not listed because you could see out over the centuries, if there was just a list of commandments, you know, it would just become a list of do's and don'ts. If you want to love God, if you want to be right with God, do these things do those things, and you're right with God. But, you know, the reason why I believe that they're not listed is because they're an all-encompassing, encompassing, encompassing, what's the word? Encompassing, there you go. I knew it was that word. Way of looking at things. You know, it's what commandment fits the situation in so many words. You know, in Matthew um, 22, you know, uh, one of the Pharisees thought he was really, really clever and he came to Jesus and he said, oh, teacher, what is the greatest commandment? And so Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the laws, law and prophets. You see, if you're loving God with all your heart, all your strength, all your soul and all your mind, you're encompassing love for God, aren't you? Your whole being is loving God. In John 14, the Lord says, if you love me, what shall we do? Keep his commandments. Again, not necessarily listed, but if you're all encompassing the love of God with loving him with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, then technically, generally, it should outwork itself to others. In verse 21 of John 14, it says, he who has my commandments and keeps them. You see, it's this continuous thing. I didn't just believe in God's commandments one day and I've forgotten all about them. I'm keeping them. He who has my commandments and keeps them is he who loves me. Evidence. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. Wow. I'm demonstrating I love Jesus and the Father saying, wow, that's good. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. Who's ever had Jesus manifest himself, himself to them? I mean, it's an interesting verse, isn't it? I would really show myself strong in your life, on your behalf, if you keep my commandments. The problem is, though, we struggle keeping God's commandments. So the genuine believer in God loves God, loves God's people, and loves keeping his commandments. You see, when we think about the commandments of God, we don't necessarily see them as burdensome. Oh my goodness, 
I believe in Jesus, therefore I can't do this. I can't do that. Totally wrong way of looking at things. In relationship with the Lord, you know what? You can do whatever you want to do. But because I love the Lord, I choose not to do certain things. Don't always get it right. But I choose to live my life in a particular way. And there's a big, there's, a, there's great freedom in that, isn't there? Because the Lord, they're not burdensome now. It's not something I'm trying to, to carry. And I've got to live like this and I've got to live like that. We have the freedom in the Lord to just, you know, that's why it's a relationship. Amen? Amen. And so it's often a challenge to fully obey the commandments of God. And we have to recognize that as John's writing this, you know, he recognizes that as believers, you know, we know there's a war going on. Galatians chapter 5 says, For the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. There's a war going on. I want to obey the commandments of God. But I've got this war going on inside. I've got this war going on out in the world. I've got the world just flashing things at me and drawing me. I've got myself drawing me. How do we do it? We have to keep our trust. We have to keep believing in faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes we get the victory. Sometimes we fail. Sometimes we fail miserably. But though the righteous shall fall, what shall the righteous do? He will get back up. He or she will arise and keep on keeping on with the Lord. You see, this is the relationship we have with the Lord. It's not burdensome. Jesus again says, you know, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Many people here today may be thinking, oh, Lord, this yoke is not easy. <laughs> this burden is not light, Lord. You don't know what's going on in my life right now. You don't know what I have to deal with. Maybe it's illness. Maybe it's a bereavement. Maybe it's a relationship which just isn't working out. Maybe it's children who you've done everything you, you, you wanted to do. You try to raise them in a God-fearing way and they are not having a bar of it. Maybe that's what it is. And maybe you're thinking here, Yoke's not easy. Burden's not light. But the Bible says, amen. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. We have to believe Jesus. We have to trust in the Lord. And it's hard. Lord, how do I trust you in this situation? Trust me. Lord, I, I don't see a way out. Trust me. Keep your faith in me. Because at the end of the day, what else and who else can you put your trust and your faith in? His yoke is easy and his burden is light. Verse 4, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is one, if you've got your Bible, you should underline. And this is the victory. This is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Our faith. That is the thing which separates us from an unbelieving, dying world. Faith in Jesus Christ. John has already mentioned in chapter 2. He says, do not love the world or the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, 
the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not, 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 not of the Father, but is of the world. Amen? And the world is what? It's passing away and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Powerful. So the world, which we know means this earthly, sinful order of things, and it basically means all that is worthless because it's fading away. You see, the world, he who overcomes this system is he who has faith in Jesus Christ. You see, the world, as I just mentioned before, is tugging at us. You know, it's getting in the way all the time. It's preventing us. It's doing all that it can do to prevent us from loving God in the way that we want to love God. We desire to love him. And in so many ways, it's getting in the way of us wanting to love God's people the way we want to love God's people. So we're constantly challenged by this worldly system, but we're challenged by what's in the world. Pride. You know, the pride of what we already have. The pride maybe of what you've achieved in life. A job, a nice house, a lovely car. Maybe you're really proud. Maybe that's what you think gives you value and worth. And then we have lust, the lust and cravings for what we don't have. The new iPad Air. I've already got an iPad, but I want to get the Air. I've got an iPhone 4S, but I need the iPhone 5. Because it's faster, it's quicker, it's 4G. Oh, but wait there. When you didn't have a phone which could go on the internet in the first place, how did you manage? Oh, it gets you online a hundredth of a second quicker. I got it now. I'm with you. Nothing wrong with the iPhone 5. But maybe it wasn't a good example. We're always wanting to get the next thing. It's Christmas time. We're looking at, oh, I'm going to get a new outfit, new pair of shoes, new top or something. And you forget that, you know what? You've got the same thing in your wardrobe already you now. I'm not speaking to the women here now. <laughs> you see, I did that though. I'm not speaking to the women there now. Okay. Pride, the world, the things of this world, the lust of the eye, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, always drawing. Is it just me? It just draws upon. Ah, you look all the holy crowd in here, the righteous crowd, I forgot. Okay. Come talk to me afterwards. Give me some tips. Pride. Well, I just don't do it that way because I do it my way. Pride. Not good. You see, the new birth, our faith in Jesus, you know, what it does is it cuts that pride. It severs it. It severs our, the grip of the world upon us. You know, it gives us an inherent victory over the world. And it gives us the ability to overcome lust, to overcome the cravings that the world has to offer us. And it gives us, we could have victory on a consistent and constant basis. And this is why John can confidently say, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. You know, and I don't know what you think of when, when you hear those words, but our faith, you know, 
we look at our Christian life perhaps in two different ways. There, there's our position in Christ and then our experience in Christ. Both valid. So when we accepted Jesus into our hearts, into our lives, and we gave our lives to the Lord, right then, right there, you didn't feel it, you didn't see it necessarily, but right then, you jumped out of one kingdom into another kingdom, and that grip of the world was severed. But now, from that point on, you have to start outworking it in your experience. And so John's saying, you know, it's our faith in Jesus which overcomes the world. It severed it. But are you walking in that now? Are you living that? You see, the way to walk in that and experience that victory is to keep connected to the Lord. Bring every situation to the throne of God. Live constantly under the influence of the Spirit. Walk in the Spirit and you shall not fulfill the... It's living in that mindset. It's staying connected to God by faith. And as we stay connected to God by faith, you know, we're putting ourselves in a place where God's resources can be made available to us. At the end of the day, he's sovereign. He may choose to answer your prayer or act in your situation. He may choose not to. He's God. But we choose to stay in faith, living for God, staying in his word, staying in prayer, staying in fellowship. And as we're doing all these things, we're working out our own salvation with fear and trembling, always with the attitude of looking back to the cross and remembering how we gained this victory in the first place, but then also looking forward to glory because, you know, God's going to fulfill his promises in our life. And so John asks the question, verse 5, Who is he who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Anybody believe Jesus is the Son of God in here? You see, victory over the world cannot be gained in any other way. It can't be gained in your own strength. It can't be gained through your own ingenuity. You can't hump it. You can't hype it. It's only by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's only found in continuous faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and Christ alone. You see, Jesus did for us what we could not do for ourselves. Amen. And in return, all we have to do is accept that finished work on the cross And walk in it because Jesus is indeed the Son of God. Now, as John wrote this epistle, and again, if you're tracking along, there was a group who was prominent in attacking the message of the gospel known as the Gnostics. And so John's kind of like got the Gnostics in mind as he's writing this as well. So there were many skeptics and many Gnostics who were about when he was writing this epistle. And the Gnostics actually taught that Jesus wasn't real. He was like a phantom. He gave the appearance that he was real, but he wasn't real. And basically they taught that at the Lord's baptism, the divine part came upon him. And before he died on the cross, it left. Jesus wasn't really a real person, they were teaching So John wants to make it very, very clear in this epistle exactly which Jesus he's referring to because there's many out there who say they're the Christ. There's many out there, many religions saying that, follow us, we're the way. We need to know what Jesus we're talking about here. And he wants to make it clear. So he gives a description of Jesus the Christ, the one who was prophesied of old. 
The one who entered into history and took on human flesh. John 1.14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And Jesus became the only agent who could take away the sins of the world. He wants to make it clear. Have we got the right Jesus here? So the second movement now is is Jesus is becoming the central focus. And he says in verse 6, this is he who came. And again, look into the Greek. This word came is an interesting word. Um, don't know if I'm going to pronounce it right, but it's erkome. And it's a very important word because... It's not just saying he came. Oh, yeah, he came. Jesus came. It's actually trying to communicate how he came. And so it's speaking of the historical Jesus who came into the world. So John goes on to describe how he came. And he gives the assurance and witness of his coming. So he says in verse 6, this is he who came. How did he come? By water and blood. Jesus Christ, not only by water, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who bears witness because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one. And there are three that bear witness on earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three agree as one. If we receive the witness of men... The witness of God is greater, for this is the witness of God, which he testifies of his son. So, in presenting Jesus, John, the historical Jesus, and how he came, John intrinsically links water and blood together to describe how Jesus came into the world as the God-man who fulfilled his ministry. And in trying to explain this, there's two main schools of thought. Now, you've got to bear with me. One says that the reference to water represents the Lord's baptism and the beginning of his public ministry when he came and he was revealed to all. And with this thought, we have the witness of the Spirit descending like a dove from above, like a dove, and the Father speaking from heaven saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And then the reference to blood represents his redemptive sacrifice on the cross, Jesus shedding his blood for the sins of the world. And so within this school of thought, we have his purpose at his baptism and the fulfillment at his crucifixion. But the difficulty with this is that within the context of the epistle, baptism is not mentioned once and baptism is not even alluded to within the epistle. So if you're one of those biblical scholars, it's kind of like hard to try and fit baptism in there. It may be hard. Maybe you're cool with it. I see it as baptism. Fine. Um, but it seems like how do we fit baptism in there when it's not spoken about, it's not within the context, not alluded to? Mm. And as I was looking at this, I was actually thinking that if you took it down a train of thought, could it give the impression that baptism was the thing that set Jesus apart? And we know that this isn't entirely true because Jesus is always God. Baptism didn't make Jesus God. You know, he was God before the incarnation. He was God, you know, before the baptism, in his earthly ministry, and he's still God now. So, you make up your own mind how you feel with it. Because for me, the two arguments are not necessarily conclusive. And in some ways, this viewpoint leans a little bit to baptismal regeneration, which I don't hold to at all. Um, so, um, 
It's interesting. This is something which you need to say la, pause, meditate on it for a while, take it home, make your own studies. Remember, we're just here trying to just teach the word of God, but you need to see if these things are so. Whatever comes from the front here, you need to go home and study it for yourself, study to show yourself approved. Amen? Amen. Right, the other main view says that the water is a reference to, got to say this right, amniotic fluid, which is the fluid that protects babies while they're in the womb. And during labor, this is the water that breaks before the baby is born. Now, this view tries to answer the Gnostics as it explores the fact that Jesus did indeed come into the world by way of natural birth, which would prove he was fully man. Are you still following me? Can I have an amen? Amen. Again, the blood, that's the water. The blood, again, will represent his redemptive work on the cross. And there are some good scriptural references that seem to be consistent with this view. But again, the difficulty I found when looking at these verses, such as when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus, you know, how do you get born again? Do we have to go back into our mother's womb? And da 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 That they seem to focus a bit more on how we get saved. How the, how the believer gets saved. And this isn't talking about how the believer gets saved. This is talking about, how Je- about Jesus. I mean, Jesus didn't get saved. How we get born again. Jesus didn't need to be born again. Do you get the point? Do you get my train of thought here? You look confused. Do you get my train of thought? All right, amen. So, Jesus didn't need to be born again. So, the the, the verses didn't necessarily, in my mind, seem consistent, um, even though I, I hear their point. So, you'll be pleased to know, I took the easy way out. <laughs> and I kind of like look at them and I think, well, I, I can happily have the two of them running alongside each other, personally. I'm not saying you should. For me, it's not an either or but both can equally be valid. And the reason why I say that is because, and I don't understand it all, you know, and because I don't understand it doesn't necessarily mean that I've got less confidence within the scriptures. I still hold fast to the scriptures. Um, The problem isn't wrong with the scriptures, the problem is wrong with me, my understanding. And so I have them running alongside to each other in my thoughts because Jesus was indeed born of a virgin. He had a natural birth surrounded by amniotic fluid, and he was a man, you know. But he was also obedient to the Father and was baptized in the Jordan, Jordan according to Scripture. And he started his public ministry in the power of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus came by water and blood. It works for me. It still works for me. Um. But I encourage you to study it for yourself. And so, moving on, you know, um, that's my attempt to try and explain how he came by water and blood. Again, you need to go and study it for yourself. But on all these occasions in his earthly life and ministry, we noticed that the Spirit of God was present actively working and bearing witness to the plan of the Godhead. And the Spirit of God continues to be present even now. So this is like the third movement, which is the work and the witness of the Holy Spirit. And you see, the Apostle John, he changes the tenses in verse 6 from Jesus came, but the Spirit is, because the Spirit is always present. It says, and it, and it is the Spirit who bears witness because the Spirit is truth. The Spirit is truth. The Spirit of God is always the Spirit of truth. Therefore, we know that the Spirit of God is reliable and trustworthy. You know, references to this, that him being the spirit of truth, John 14, 17, John 16, 13, and 1 John 4, 6. 
And so John in verses 7 and 8, you know, what he's trying to do in order to prove how Jesus came, this historical Jesus, you know, that he was a man. He was fully man. He was fully God. He uses a legal framework to solidify his point of Jesus being the Christ and the reliability of the Spirit who testifies of this. Now, I read verses 7 and 8 from the New King James Version. And many modern Bibles, you know, um, have added what I read. They've added words into those verses. And the words they've added within there are not in the original manuscripts. And so... Verses 7 and 8 should read, for there are three that bear witness. That's verse 7. Verse 8, the spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three agree as one. That's how that should read. And again, by taking out those additional words, it doesn't lessen my confidence in the scriptures. And by taking out those words, you know, we can still agree that it doesn't alter what John is trying to communicate to us about this threefold witness. And so he uses this Jewish legal framework um, based upon verses like Deuteronomy 19, which says, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. And so, are you still good to stick with me, yeah? Amen. So the first witness, John states, is the Spirit of God. There are three that bear witness, the Spirit, who testifies and bears witness both internally and externally that Jesus is the Christ. And so if we can think about it this way, the Spirit of God connects what happened in history roughly 2,000 years ago to what happens in an individual's heart, and it's the Spirit of God which brings life. Boom. So... For some of you who have been around the block a few years now, you've been walking with the Lord for 10 years. 10 years ago, you somehow look back to what happened at Calvary and you accepted it as truth and the Spirit of God went boom. You believed it and he put you into the kingdom of God, into God's family. He connected you that way. And so there was external evidence, but there was that inner working going on in our hearts. Amen. And so as the Spirit of God works in our hearts, we know that, you know, he brings conviction. We're thinking about something, we're doing something, and we know we shouldn't be thinking, we know we shouldn't be doing it, and the Spirit of God is there saying, don't do that. You shouldn't be doing that. Why don't you do this? Why don't you go and read? Why don't you go and pray? Why don't you go and have some fellowship? Amen? That inner working going on. He's persuading us, encouraging us to do the things which, God, which is pleasing before the Lord and to be more like Jesus. Once we were dead, but it was the Spirit who came and brought life. And we know that externally he works and we know that the Spirit can be experienced visibly and audibly. You know, we have the example of the day of Pentecost, for example. Visibly, they could see what was going on within the Spirit, and audibly, they could hear, you know, what are these guys doing? They're praising God in their own different languages. Yeah, but you think it's that, but this is this. That's what Peter said. And so internally and externally. And so John's appealing to the witness of the Spirit. And again, just the, the example that it was an, an external audible voice and message that we heard, and that's why we're here today. 
somebody communicated some type of external audible message and you was like, amen, I receive it. You responded to it and you came into a relationship with Jesus. The second witness is the water, which I tried to explain before regarding the Lord's birth and his baptism. And at the Lord's birth, there were these additional witnesses of the heavenly host, of the, of the shepherds who were keeping their flocks by night. And so there's, there's these layers of witnesses which John's trying to appeal to, to bring the assurity of who Jesus is. Um, the third witness is the blood. And again, the pure sinless blood of Jesus, which is timeless. When you really think about it, um, the blood of Jesus was shed roughly 2,000 years ago, but it still had the same power today to save. It doesn't congeal. It's fresh, it's timeless as if it was just shed so that we can receive it, so that we can come into relationship with Jesus. And it's available to whosoever will. That's the third witness. And, you know, John's using these witnesses to affirm God's plan of salvation. And he says in verse 9, if we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God, which he has testified of his son. So, I've mentioned it already, but us, by virtue of us all being here today, listening to me share, it's testimony to the witness of men. The eyewitnesses who were there, who were with Jesus, who saw him die, was there when he rose again, communicated it to others, and it was laid down down the centuries to a point where we're gathered here today, believe in their testimony, believe in their witness. And John is saying, well, you know what? You will rely upon that witness. But there's a greater witness than that. And it's going back to the greater witness being that inner witness of the Spirit of God speaking to our hearts and giving us assurance of the salvation, again, that can only be found in Jesus. You see, the message has to be accompanied by the Spirit giving life to that message. And it's the Spirit which is the greater witness. The Spirit is the greater witness. And you know, that very Spirit, spirit is... Um, is speaking to us even now. I mean, if you're thinking about what you're going to have for dinner after this, that's not the Spirit of God. <laughs> if you're thinking you're going to have to hit pre-mark after you finish here, that's not the Spirit of God. But if you're thinking, you know what, I'm not really offending my brother or my sister, you know, and I really need to make out with them. That's the Spirit. If you're thinking how you can bless another brother or sister, that's the Spirit of God. If you're really struggling in an area of your life and you're thinking, how am I going to overcome this? Lord, please help me. That's the Spirit. The inner witness, a greater witness, a more powerful witness, a witness which oftentimes and most days we just... That's my Dalek thing again. We just close our ears to the Spirit of God. We live our lives where it's like, all right, Lord, I'm doing this. And when I stop doing this, I'll, 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 I'll make some time for you. We live in that zone. And God doesn't want us to live in that goal because, zone because there's a greater witness. He's given us his spirit within ourselves so that we can listen to him. We can be led by him. We could be more like him. Which then leads us to the fourth movement, and then, which is the believer's personal witness. Verse 10 says, he who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. You see, you know. It's one of those Noah spirits. You know that you know that you know. You, you didn't like that one. All right. 
He who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his son. I mean, you see what John's saying there? If you believe, you know that you believe. And you're in a good spot. You're right with God. But those who don't believe, listen, do you hear what John's actually said? They've, they've made God a liar. God, you're a liar. I don't believe you. I don't want to believe you. You know what? I'd rather just live my life for myself, innit? I'd rather do my own thing. Take my chances, innit? And when we die, well, hell be like a party, won't it? Really? You've made God to be a liar because you have not received, believed the testimony that God has given of his son. You know, um, you know, the whole thing of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, do you know what I mean? It's like not believing the work of the Spirit, the, the Spirit of God who is present, moving on people's hearts, revealing Jesus. And people are going to say, do you know what? No thanks. Your plan of salvation, Lord, you know all those prophecies and then you fulfilled them and prophecies and you fulfilled them and one, whoop, you died and rose from it. Don't want it. Imagine that. He says, people with that attitude are making God to be a liar. But those who believe in the Son, you know, they have that full assurance. They have that personal witness. Again, you're not perfect. You fall, you stumble. We fall, we stumble. But we know that our Lord and our God is a gracious, loving, and forgiving God. And if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the God we serve. And so we have that assurance, that inner witness within ourselves once we come into saving faith in Jesus Christ. And our fifth and final movement is the Father's full assurance. And verse 11 is just wonderful. Again, it's, an, it's another one where you can just underline, highlight. But you can't really highlight if you've got a phone, can you? You, need a, you, need, you, you can. You see, you've got an iPhone 5, haven't you? Oh, is that how you're getting over the phones now? Still backing it for the lever and paper. Can I get a witness? Amen. Amen. And this is the testimony. This is the sure thing. This is the thing which... You know what, if we were betting people and we did the lottery, we could just put a big bet on it. We could have full assurance in it. It says that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. You see, we can be here today with the full assurance that God has given it to us. We have eternal life. Now, that may be a small thing to you guys. It's a big thing for me. It's something which we can rejoice about. It's something that when we come together, we can sing about until we've got no more voice left because it's good news. It's something to be happy about. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. He who has the son has life. He who does not have the son of God does not have life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know, that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue, again, you see, it's that continuance, continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. What wonderful promises, amen? Amen. Father, we thank you for your wonderful word. We thank you for your promises, Lord. 
We thank you, Lord, that you're so good. And you desire, Lord, that we continue in faith, Lord, to know the God in whom we serve. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit will just be ministering to people even now, Lord. Lord, where people have had strongholds or difficulties, Lord, I pray that by the power of your Spirit, Lord Jesus, you would break those strongholds. You would help them to overcome those difficulties, Lord Jesus, so that they would have breakthrough in their life. So that we, Lord Jesus, can worship you in spirit and in truth. That we could be obedient to you, Lord. Minister to your people, Lord, by your spirit who is always present. Have your way, Lord. Help us not, Lord, to be a hindrance in your hands, but to be a help in your hands, I pray. And so for the rest of the day, Lord Jesus, I pray that you just minister to us. If that's for people to make amends with their brothers and sisters, Lord, then prompt them in that way. If that's for us just to have that full assurance, Lord, of, of your promises, Lord, help us to stand in that, to know it to be true. Help us, Lord, to be more like you, I pray. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. To find out more about us, visit our website at calvarychapelsouthlondon.org or find us on Facebook and Twitter at CC South London. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.